Well, I need to confess something to you this morning. I began my holidays this year with a terrible mistake. I feel like this is a good time to come clean. Now, for some reason, after over a decade of wisdom and purity on this issue, I, I made a terrible mistake this year and decided to join my wife and sister for a Black Friday shopping adventure. <laughs> I did. I did. And, and don't get me wrong, the morning, the morning started out okay. Warm cup of coffee and an egg white sandwich from Panera. We made our way into some of the smaller stores. We went to Justice and got some clothes for Emma. And then we went to Kohl's. <laughs> the lion's den. I'm telling you the truth. I mean, immediately the darkness of Black Friday came pouring into my ignorant, well-meaning soul. And, and I saw customers fighting one another to save $8 on Aunt Edna's toaster. <laughs> Exchanging scathing glances to see who was going to be the one to get the last deal buster. And maybe worst of all, innocent, poor husbands who are forced <laughs> by their ambitious wives, not just to go, but to, to stand in line while they pillage the rest of the store and then come back and forth making trips and well, well, let's just leave it there for now. No, it really, it really wasn't that bad. We really did have a good time. We made some pretty good memories, and I'll never do it again. <laughs> but the one thing, in all sincerity, that really did stick out to me as we were running around these stores on Black Friday was just the breakneck pace that everybody and everything was moving at. And, and I think that's something that we can probably all relate to around Christmas time, right? Whether it's, whether it's crazy shopping or our kids' crazy schedules or holiday parties and work commitments and family commitments that Christmas just seems to come and go so quickly, doesn't it? And, and I think one of the dangers is that if we don't slow down uh, and we're not intentional, we may, we may actually miss the point altogether. And so for that reason, uh, we are starting today a new Christmas series called Portraits of Christmas. And it's a series that that we hope will do just that, that will cause us all at least once a week to slow down a bit, uh, to take a look just like we would at any beautiful portrait or piece of music or a good relationship, and to take a good hard look specifically at some of the ways that the Bible describes Jesus around the coming of his time to the earth. And so Portraits of Christmas, we begin this week with the portrait of promise, the portrait of promise. So along those lines, I wonder if you have ever been disappointed by a broken promise or a broken commitment. Right? You make yourself vulnerable. You, you put your hope and trust in someone and their word. You find yourself along the way as you're waiting, growing and in anticipation. Are they actually going to do it? Are they going to make good on their word? And then when they don't, you, you feel that sense of, let down, right? That sense of wanting. Whether it's a politician or a parent, a friend or a colleague, we really all do know what it's like to be waiting in eager anticipation for someone to make good on their word and then to be left disappointed. That sense of anticipation is not that much unlike what God's people would have been feeling and sensing around the time of Jesus' first coming, right? I mean, they knew their history. They knew about God's promises to them and to his people. 
promises of deliverance and peace and blessing, and yet as they looked around at their circumstances, they saw something different. Just being overtaken and suppressed by one powerful nation after another, having not heard the word of the Lord through an inspired prophet for hundreds of years. Where is God in all of that? Has he forgotten about us and his promise? Is he just another in the long line of well-meaning promise makers who at the end of the day just can't make good on their promise? I wonder if there are times in your life when you've ever felt that way about God. So it's with, with that idea, with those questions, and even that tension in the room that we turn our attention to the scriptures this morning. If you have a Bible, please turn in it to Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can turn to page 807 of the Pew Bibles. Please take one and, and follow along as we study the scriptures together. Matthew's in the New Testament, first book actually. And with that really brief historical background, let's look together at the first verse, Matthew 1 and verse 1. He writes, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now this, this one verse, just this opening verse, tells us so much about what Matthew is setting out to accomplish in his historical biography of the Lord Jesus. He's showing us that something historical is happening here. Something ancient is, is coming to pass. And what he gives allusion to just in this first verse is that Jesus is the one who fulfills the promises of God. By drawing these big historical arcs from Abraham to David and then to Jesus, Matthew is showing us that, that he is the clear and compelling fulfillment of God's promises. Way back in the book of Genesis, God makes a series of promises to Abraham, including things like, I will make you a great nation, and I'll bless you, and, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Then he says to David, many, many years later, I will raise up your offspring after you and establish his kingdom, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then if we were to leaf through the rest of Matthew's opening chapters, we would see that, that he very clearly tags Jesus as the one who uniquely fulfills all of these promises and prophecies about this character, the Messiah, or the Christ, as he identifies him in verse 1. The one in who all the promises of God would, would come together. For example, we see at the end of chapter 1 that he was to be born of a virgin, referencing Isaiah 7. The beginning of chapter 2, we see that he, he ties Jesus coming from Bethlehem in to the narrative. Later on in chapter 2, we see that this Messiah would come during a time of great tragedy for the families of Israel, referencing Jeremiah 31, and, and on and on and on. As Jesus' life progressed, we would see many other of those specific fulfillments, like his ministry of teaching, his healings, of course, his great suffering. And if all of that weren't compelling enough, Jesus himself makes the remarkable statement. You might just leaf over to it in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. He makes the remarkable statement, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Mark Dever summarizes this 
really nicely, I think, when he says that Jesus was not so much the founder of a new religion as he was the interpreter of a deep and ancient stream of God's special revelation of himself. Jesus, you see, was not so much an inventor, he says, but the fulfillment. One pretty prominent scientific study notes the probability of just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled in a single person as one in ten to the 17th power. That's a big number. In fact, just to give you an idea of how big it is, you could, you could stack 10 to the 17th worth of silver dollars about two feet deep and then lay those stacks side by side across the entire state of Texas. It's amazing, isn't it? That's just eight of those promises. It said that Jesus fulfilled as many as 60 major prophecies and promises and, and, and many others in a secondary way. Here's another way to look at it. Imagine that you have just agreed over the phone to, to meet with a business colleague that you've actually never seen face-to-face. So you, you jump on the phone and you say, okay, we're going to meet at the airport. How, how can I identify you? How will I know that it's, that it's you? And your colleague says, well, I'll be carrying a briefcase. Okay, that, that's a helpful start. Uh, can you tell me, what, tell me, what about the briefcase? And he responds, well, it's a black briefcase. <laughs> You say, okay, uh, how else can I identify you? Is there, is there anything? I think there's probably a lot of black briefcases running around Cleveland Airport. And so he says, okay, he says, I, I have red hair, and I'll, I'll wear a blue suit that day. So there's a couple of other things. All right, now we're getting somewhere. Red hair, blue suit, black briefcase. But, but, but is that still definitive? And so finally your colleague says, I tell you what, how about I just wear a name tag with my name in all capital letters? That way you can, you can see me coming a mile away, and you'll be able to identify me. Perfect. Yes, that's it. Man with red hair, wearing a blue suit, carrying a black briefcase, and he's got a a name tag on it. The point, of course, is that the the greater the degree of specificity, the greater the likelihood of identifying the right person and growing in our confidence that this really is the right person. Jesus is standing before us, in a sense, today, holding a big sign that says, It's me. I'm the one. I'm the unique son of God. I'm the fulfillment of of all of those prophecies and promises. Now you say that, that's all well and good, but but, but outside of Jesus just checking a lot of those boxes, are there any practical implications for all of that? And it's a good question to ask, and and the answer is absolutely. There's a couple I'll mention. One is that if, if Jesus really is the unique son of God, for example, then he is the only one qualified to make the statements that he made about himself in relationship to his person, in relationship to his divinity, to actually be God. And that means that he's the only one uniquely worthy of our faith, of our worship, and our allegiance. There's just nobody else like him. And I think about how that relates uh, in a culture that is growing and becoming increasingly pluralistic, I mean, to make that type of an exclusive statement, I mean, what do we, what do, we do with that? And, and if you're here this morning and you, you find yourself in that situation, I would, just, I would challenge you this morning to look really hard at the compelling evidence that the Bible presents for Jesus as the unique Son of God. And if you're wondering as to whether or not he's really the one that you should entrust your life to, I would just affirm that you to seriously consider that today. He is the unique son of God. He uniquely fulfills 
the promises of God. And Christmas is, is the perfect time to see him clearly. So I'd encourage you to really consider him today. Consider putting your faith in him and your trust in him because he really is who he said he was, the fulfillment of promise. You know, another really simple application of this idea of fulfillment is helping those of us who have put our faith in Jesus to rightly understand and apply the promises of the Old Testament in light of Jesus' coming. Right? The Old Testament takes up more than half of our Bibles, and so it is so necessary for us to read the Old Testament and to understand the Old Testament and its promises in relationship to Jesus' coming. Right? Otherwise, we, we miss on a couple of things. First of all, we miss on wrongly applying certain promises apart from the reality of Jesus' coming. And we also miss on the richness and the way in which the Old, the Old Testament anticipates and points us to Jesus. And so it's understanding those things in their historical and cultural setting. And it's reading the Old Testament through the lens of the Lord Jesus himself in light of his fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Now, an important question at this point is, does all of this fulfillment business directly relate to the people of God today? I mean, we've seen how the lines are connected between Jesus and these promises, but, but how about the connection with us? And that's a good question. And the Bible's response to this is that there's a major connection. It's, a, it's good news because Jesus not only fulfills these promises of God, we also see the Bible tells us that he gives access to those promises. Jesus, like an usher, gives access to the promises and the presence of God. There's a couple of passages we can look at to help us understand this. Turn right, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, we stay in the New Testament. Hebrews 8 and 9, somewhere in the chapters 8 and 9 area. We're going to be back and forth a little bit. Hebrews chapter 8 and 9. Once you get there, why don't you take a look down at Hebrews 8 and verse 6. Help us understand this idea of Jesus giving access the promises of God. Here we are, Hebrews 8, 6. It says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant that he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. Then just to the right, let's get some more evidence. Hebrews 9 and verse 15. We read, therefore, Jesus is the mediator, there's that word again, of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now we have a couple of biblical ideas that we need to pause and just think about for a minute. The first is this idea of a mediator, which I think we, we have a general understanding of, right? A mediator is someone who stands between two parties. He manages the relationship. He represents one party to the other and, of course, back again. But what about this idea of covenant? This is a major biblical theme that the time does not allow us the opportunity to explore in its full depth. But, but think of covenant essentially as the framework or the terms by which the mediator manages the relationship. So between these two passages, they show us that Jesus is the mediator with our relationship with God. And he does so, verse 15 of chapter 9, to give access to all those who are called into this glorious promised inheritance. He gives us access to the promises of God. You know, another passage that helps us to understand uh, this idea, there's no need to turn there, but just listen carefully to 2 Corinthians 1, verses 20 and 21. Paul writes that all the promises of God, all 
find their yes in Jesus. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Why would Paul write something like this? It's an important question. We've got to answer it contextually. And basically what Paul is doing here is he's, he's concluding his argument to try to correct some errant thinking about his affections and his love for the church. Because, you see, he had made some plans to visit this church in Corinth, to bless them, to encourage them. But the plans changed, as they often do. And the church got wind of this. And so they thought to themselves, man, is this guy talking on both sides of his mouth? He's yes for us on one hand, and he's no for us on the other hand. And Paul says, no, 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 I'm actually all for you. I'm yes and yes. And he roots the argument, and this is where this passage comes into play, in the fact that God in Christ is himself for the church. He's all in on them because God is all in on them. And in Christ, all of those promises are a resounding yes. He's saying, listen, your account is brimming with the promises of God. Nothing is withheld. So much so that that actually the response is that we utter our yes or amen back to God. And so God says yes to us in Christ, and we say yes to God in Christ. And very practically, gang, this is one reason why we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you come from a Christian home and you've thought, it's just kind of something out of habit that you just tack on to the end of your prayers. No, no, there's, there's great theological purpose in that because when we pray in Jesus' name, several things are happening. The first is that we're acknowledging to God the Father that Jesus is actually mediating the conversation, which is the only reason we can have it in the first place. We have access to him. Another thing that happens is that we acknowledge that we have access to those promises and that, that in that access, the answer is yes, in Jesus Christ, because Jesus is the one who gives us access into the promises of God. I will never forget the time that I took my buddy Topher to his first Cleveland Cavaliers basketball game. This was a few years ago. I got a phone call from a friend of mine, and he generously offered up uh, his company tickets. And so I was excited. Sarah was excited. He's a huge Cavs fan. This is his first game. So we surprised him. I actually picked him up at school. I picked him up early. He thought he was in trouble. Uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't tell him where we were going. So we made our way down Interstate 80, Pastor Kevin, toward your, toward, toward your area. And uh, when we got to the arena, he totally flipped out because he knew at that point what was about to happen. Now, I knew at the time that these were really, really good seats. They were like three or four rows back, kind of under the basket, right by the Cavaliers bench. But what I didn't know is that these particular seats came with this magical wristband. So you, get your, you go in, and they give you this magical wristband, and it gives you access to all of these places. We got to hang out at this really cool lounge before the game. He got nearly every free giveaway that you could possibly get when you went to the arena for that evening. They came to him before the game, and they asked him to come. Would you like to high-five the players? And he's losing his mind, and so he gets to high-five the players. And, and this little band provided what was darn near the perfect night for me and Topher. We were talking about it actually just this week, and he said, you know, Dad, I think that was the best night of my life. Pretty cool. Jesus is like that all-access band. When you put your faith in him and you're united to him by that faith, he gives you access into all the promises of God which are yes in him. 
So as we're looking deeper and longer at this portrait of promise, I hope that you're seeing that this is far more than just checking off a lot of boxes of of requirements that Jesus fulfills. That actually we could say that when it comes to the promises of God, Jesus makes good on them all. When it comes to the promises of God, we can say that Jesus makes good on them all. That he is the clearest, most compelling evidence that God is a promise maker who can be trusted. He fulfills the promises of God. He gives access to the promises of God. When it comes to God's promises, Jesus makes good on them all. But there is still a really important question that we've got to answer this morning. Because if we don't, we miss an invaluable aspect of God's promises. The question we've got to answer is how. How does God in Christ do all of this? I mean, let's take a a specific example. Let's take Exodus 34, 6 and 7, which is on the screen behind me. God says to Moses, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Did you catch it? Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. How can God promise both of those things at the same time, right? I mean, it seems a bit like a contradiction. And so at this point, we've got to ask the question, how? We've got to be like our friend, the Grinch who stole Christmas, who stood with his feet in the snow, puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? How is it that God can make good on all of his promises, right? Not just just those of blessing and peace and forgiveness, but on those of justice and righteousness. It's in the answer to that question that we realize that the promises of God are not just something God says to us. They are something he does for us. Namely, the Lord Jesus Christ accomplishes the promises of God. He not only fulfills them, which he does uniquely, fully, completely, he not only gives full access to them, which he does, but he actually accomplishes the promises of God. You're still in Hebrews 8, right? Hebrews 8 and 9, we were back and forth there. But let's take a deeper look at, at, at how this works itself out. We, we read earlier Hebrews 9, 15. I want you to look at that passage again. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant, right? We said that, so that those who are called may receive this promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Do you see the logic? He's the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance since a death has occurred. The redemptive death of the Lord Jesus Christ accomplishes the promises of God in the fullest sense. And that is why the covenant that he mediates is superior to the previous covenants. That's why Hebrews 8 makes sense. We ought to look at that again. We read 8.6 earlier, Christ obtained a ministry that's more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. Better promises. What what does he mean there? 
Well, we've got to keep reading. Let's read verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. He's talking about the Mosaic covenant. For he finds fault with them, meaning the people, when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And there we have the problem. Then we see verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and remember their sins no more. How does God ensure that this will happen? How can he make these types of promises? He can make them because Jesus, in the new covenant, by way of his life and sacrificial death, meets all the terms. Both sides of the equation, the divine and the human, the promises of justice and forgiveness, of divine faithfulness and of human obedience, all come together in the person and work of Jesus. This is why we say, when it comes to the promises of God, Jesus makes good on them all. It's helpful to, to take a look at, in more detail, what some of these gospel promises are, right? What does this promised inheritance from Hebrews 9, 8, and 9 actually look like? And one of my favorite places in the scriptures that just provides a spectacular view, just listen to it from Ephesians 1, that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, including being chosen in him, adopted through him, redeemed in him, forgiven in him, given an inheritance in him, in him, in him, as many as 10 times the Apostle Paul uses that phrase, in him, to tether and chain the blessings of the gospel to those who are in Christ. When it comes to the promises of God, we really can say that, that Jesus makes good on them all. John Piper says it well in that all the promises of God for the good of his people focus in Christ. He confirms them and secures them and, as it were, purchases them for all who belong to him and believe. And so we see that, that, that these promises that Jesus makes good on aren't some trite, superficial benefits to St. Peter's Country Club. I mean, these promises are meeting us at the deepest point of need. Forgiveness, identity, significance, adoption and acceptance and love and peace with God and, and an inheritance that can't be ruined by anything in this world that's imperishable, unfading, kept in heaven for us, 1 Peter 1. So in thinking more, more specifically about those, those promises that Jesus accomplishes, we might consider just a few practical pitfalls that we can avoid. One is, is relating to those who may be here, even in this room, who haven't yet put your faith in Jesus. We chatted a little earlier about this, but it bears repeating that, that the glorious promises and benefits of the gospel are only applied for those who are in 
Christ. That's the language that the Bible uses. In fact, we have to be honest and, and think about this logically. The stark reality then is that the opposite thing is true of the person who's not in Christ or outside of Christ or rejects the Lord Jesus. Unforgiven sin. Guilt before God. Running along the rat wheel of life. Grasping for purpose and self-justification. I, again, I would just I would encourage you strongly to consider putting your faith in Jesus, to to confess your sin to God, to recognize that he uniquely fulfills the promises of God. He gives access, he accomplishes these promises, and he offers them freely to all who believe. I mean, that's the good news, right? You might be here this morning and you think, man, the Christmas season, people love it, but it actually brings out the worst in me. You know, I get in the car and I drive down the road and I realize what a terrible person I am because the road rage this time of year is just, it's terrible, The good news is that Jesus did not accomplish the promises of God for the good or the deserving. He accomplished them for the needy. And so by confessing your sin and your need for Jesus to forgive you and to save you, you are united to him by that trust and faith and gain access to all of these promises that he's accomplished for us. Really consider that this morning. Uh, Another pitfall we might think about as it relates to these specific promises are those of us who are in fact in Christ. And I think about this uh, like a spectrum. On one hand of the spectrum, we might, we might call the error laying claim to actually more than God promises. Meaning we, we think too temporally or perhaps materialistically about the promises of God. Remember, we're not, we're not talking here about Corvettes and, and country clubs. Ephesians 1 tells us that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing, right? In the heavenly places. In fact, we know as Christians... We will in this life experience trial and suffering and trouble and yet the word of Jesus is encouraging to us that in the world you have tribulation but take heart for I have overcome the world. That's one end of the spectrum. Now the other end of the spectrum uh, for Christians I think is thinking too little about the promises of God. Right? In order to avoid the first error, we just kind of go the other way and we want to stay away from the prosperity gospel and we want to stay away from name it, claim it, faith. And yet we forget that that we should, friends, with much regularity, be joyfully and humbly laying hold of the promises of God in Christ. This happens as we pray. Try structuring your prayer around the promises of God this week. It happens as we bring ourselves under regular gospel preaching, as we preach the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves as we forget so often who we actually are in Jesus Christ. Not by our own merit or works, but But in him, we have access to these great promises. Because when it comes to the promises of God, Jesus makes good on them all. You know, a few Christmases ago, a couple of young ladies, maybe six or seven years old, were taking a little walk along a snowy road, and they got in a really deep and important conversation about how many quarters each of them had. This is a very important conversation kids that age. So the one young lady reaches into her pocket and she, she pulls out a, a handful of quarters and she, she holds them out and says to her friend, I have ten. I have ten quarters. Her friend, kind of a puzzled look in her eye, looked back at her and said, no you don't. You, you only have five. I can, I can see right there in your hand. I can count them. One, two, three, four. You have five. You have five quarters. 
young lady smiled confidently, looked at her friend and said, well, my daddy promised me five more when I got home. So I actually have 10. And what she understood in that very simple conversation is that while she may not have had full possession, she had the promise. And that was enough. And friends, for us, it must be enough. And it indeed is enough. And my prayer for all of us this morning is that we would grow in that realization, growing in the joy, frankly, the trust in God's promises. That even in this life, while we enjoy the benefits of these promises in part, knowing that one day that eternal inheritance will be fully known and fully realized, and yet even in this life, those promises are true, and that inheritance belongs to the one who is, in fact, in Christ. Because when it comes to the promises of God, we really can say that Jesus makes good on them all. With that, let's pray together. Father, forgive us for the errors of our lives as it relates to the promises that you make to us and fulfill in the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us for the errors uh, perhaps on both ends of that spectrum that we talked about. I pray that you will open our eyes afresh today to see just how good and generous and gracious you are. May we see all of your promises find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his saving work. May we look to him and to him alone. May we grow in our contentment with the beautiful inheritance that you've given us in him. May we be eager to share that news with others this Christmas season. And I pray that he would be honored among us. We are thankful that even as we pray now, he is mediating this prayer. He gives us access into your promise and into your presence. What joy that brings to us. And may we grow in that joy even more today, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.